Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in a little later in the show. We are going to talk about border zone communities, places where police and other authorities have the authority to be a little more aggressive about enforcing immigration policy. We live in one of those border zones here in the state of Michigan, but it turns out 65% of Americans live in a border zone, and it covers most metropolitan areas in the country. We're going to talk about what that means in terms of living in one of those zones and whether this is sort of a proxy for just being able to uh, be aggressive with immigration policy, particularly with people uh, who look like they may be from another country uh, in places around the nation. We're going to talk about it here in Michigan and some other Spot. So you are going to want to stay tuned for that. That is going to get started about half past the hour. But first, yesterday, the U.S. Supreme Court dealt a blow to workers who feel they've been discriminated against by their employers. In a five to four decision, the court upheld workplace arbitration contracts that bar workers from banding together to challenge what they see as violations of federal labor law. Instead, they may be forced into arbitration instead of having the opportunity to file a lawsuit, and they won't be able to join class actions against employers. The opinion was authored by the court's newest justice, Neil Gorsuch. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote for the four dissenters, saying it will lead to a huge lack of enforcement of federal and state laws meant to protect the most vulnerable workers. Will that actually be the case? Both sides have suggested Congress could step in to clarify the law, but will it? And is this part of a longer pattern of putting more power in the hands of corporations and CEOs while taking power away from workers? Joining us now to talk about yesterday's ruling, talk about the court, and talk about the effect in the workplace is Sam Bagenstas. He is a professor of law uh, at Constitutional Law and Civil Liberties who teaches employment law at the University of Michigan. Sam, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me. Mm-hmm. Also with us is Merrick Masters. He's the director of labor at Wayne State University, where he is a professor of business and adjunct, adjunct professor of political science. Merrick, welcome Good to morning. Detroit Today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's let's start with just a, a quick thumbnail of what you think the effect of this ruling yesterday will be, what each of you think that will be. Uh, Sam, I'll start with you. Well... You know, over the past couple of decades, we've had this real explosion of uh, the use of these arbitration agreements in employment contracts. And what an arbitration agreement is, as you said, is basically when when you come to work the first day, you get a pack of packet of papers to sign. And one of the things you sign says, if you have any legal complaints with your employer, you're not going to take it to court. Instead, you're going to take it to an arbitrator. An arbitrator is sort of like a private judge who's mm-hmm. hired by, you know, some combination of the employer and the employee. But, you know, because the employer has a lot of these cases, the employer often has the most, uh, has the most impact in deciding who the arbitrator is. So we've seen that explosion over the last 20 years. And over the last couple of years, there's been this additional piece where Part of that agreement is you also agree, and, you know, this isn't a negotiated agreement. This is just something you get when you start work. 
um, and you have to sign in order to work. Um, part of the agreement is that you agree not to join together in a class action, whether as you know, in our, whether in an arbitration or in court. Um, mm-hmm. So, and and that's that's very significant. I think we'll see many more of these arbitration provisions now that the Supreme Court has blessed the ban on class actions and employment contracts. Um, it's going to be a very big deal. As Justice Ginsburg said, there are just a lot of kinds of violations of labor laws that it's not worth it for anyone to bring to court or to an arbitration individually. It's only when the employees band together that it really makes sense to do it. Uh-huh. And those cases probably aren't going to happen to nearly the same extent anymore. Right. Uh, Merrick, uh, talk about what the uh, the sort of effect of that ruling will look like in, in workplaces. Well, I'd like to echo what my colleague from uh, the University of Michigan said in that I'm Looking at some data, there have been some studies done by a professor from Cornell University, Alexander Colvin, who's tried to estimate the number of employees in the private sector who are covered by these mandatory employment arbitration agreements. And his studies indicate that among private sector employees, you have about 60.1 60.1 million, or about 86% of those employees, these are non-union employees who are covered by mandatory employment agreements. Mm-hmm. And uh, about half of those, I would say, are covered, according to his estimates, um, by um, accompanying prohibitions on class action suits. And so essentially what this uh, does is continue, um, you know, a a two decades long um, endorsement of arbitration as a means of resolving these so-called private disputes um, through these arbitration mechanisms in which people essentially forfeit their right to go to court um, and submit to this proceeding. Mm-hmm. And therefore, uh, you can say that since it, the court has sanctioned this mechanism in, in, in greater affirmation through its decision uh, on Monday, that you're likely to see more employers comfortable using this mechanism as a means of resolving disputes. And if anything, you'll see a growth in it. Uh, so there's been a really a ballooning of it over the past um, 20 years. And you can expect that to continue. And and what kind of disputes are we talking about here uh, that would that would be solved through arbitration instead of through the courts? Uh, Merrick, is 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 this about uh, discrimination law only? Is it about many many different things? It, it can be it can be many other things. It can also include disputes over overtime. Uh, matters involving the Fair Labor Standards Act. Uh, so it, it, it's broader than just the EEO types of complaints, although the, that's probably the hot-button aspect of it right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sam, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, wrote a pretty searing uh, dissent from this opinion uh, yesterday. You, you were at one point a clerk for uh, Justice Ginsburg, is that right? Yeah. Uh, uh, talk about her dissent and and sort of where that wing of the court comes down uh, on these issues. Uh, this is not a new issue at the court. This, it, this has been uh, there for a while in terms of uh, them moving it in a direction. What did she say yesterday? 
Yeah, I mean, so this is this is sort of the culmination of a series of cases that began, you know, really in about 2001 with a case called Circuit City, and you know, the the wing of the court that Justice Ginsburg represents has been in the minority in most of those cases, mm-hmm. um, you know, often all of them. What Justice Ginsburg said in her dissent yesterday, and it's a really it's a really well put together document. She put the she put the employment arbitration agreements um, in the context of where American labor law came from in the 1920s and 1930s, mm-hmm. uh, which is a response to something called yellow dog contract. Right. You know, a, a yellow dog contract was basically if you're going to work here, you have to agree not to not to join a union, and a big part of American labor, the American labor movement, American labor activism, and American labor law in the early part of the 20th century was banning those contracts. Um, you know, and the arguments that were made in support of yellow dog contracts were the same kinds of arguments that employers are making in support of the, these kinds of arbitration agreements today. Mm-hmm. And they say, look, it, it's an agreement. It's, it's, you know, if you don't like it, go work somewhere else. Uh, if the if the employee agrees to sign a yellow dog contract, obviously the worker thinks that it that he or she is better off with the yellow dog contract than without. Same thing here. People, the employer side will say, look, if an, if a worker doesn't want an arbitration agreement, go work somewhere else. And I think you know what Justice Ginsburg does a really nice job doing. There's a lot of legal analysis too, but I think that it's the historical analysis that's so important. Mm-hmm. Um, what she does a nice job of doing is saying, look, you know, in the 1920s and 1930s, our policymakers, Congress, made a decision that that's not actually a real choice that employees make. If you're a worker, you need the job. And so it's not really a bilateral contract. It's really something that is imposed on the worker. And she said the same thing is true in the arbitration context in many of these cases. And a lot of these cases, you know, in order to send a job application in, you have to check a box. You have to agree, to right? Yeah, yeah. So it's not—it's not like you know the the model of two people sitting across a table negotiating terms. Um, and I think that's that's a really important point that she made. I think the other the important legal point that she made was in adopting the foundational labor law in America, the National Labor Relations Act. What Congress protected at its core was something, and this is the language of the, of the statute, concerted activity for mutual aid and protection, workers engaging in concerted activity for mutual aid and protection. And she said, look, what's, what's a class action lawsuit? It's workers getting together, concerted activity, to protect themselves and each other for mutual aid and protection against violations of the law. So just on the plain language of the National Labor Relations Act, these class action bans, she said, ought not to be enforced because they're illegal. Um, And obviously the majority disagreed with that. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead, uh, Merrick Masters. I was going to ask you about... I was going to just... Go ahead, ahead, sir. I was going to ask you about the the majority opinion written by Justice Neil Gorsuch, the newest member of the court. Uh, Did we learn anything about him that we didn't know uh, at this point? Uh, Well, I I think it's pretty consistent with what we would have expected given his track record and sort of what he insinuated during his confirmation hearings. So I'm not surprised at all at how the court came down. I mean, he took a different point of view about the interpretation of concerted activities. Mm -hmm. 
But I'd like to just piggyback on one thing um, the professor said, and that is that for all practical purposes, um, if you can't engage in class action suits, um, many people don't really have the, the wherewithal to sue by themselves right. or to take any kind of action. Yes. And so essentially what uh, we're saying is even though they may have you know, access to the EEOC, uh, they, they can't do it on their own. Uh, they don't have the legal counsel or the means of mm -hmm. doing it, mm -hmm. and therefore we're shutting a door to them. Uh, and uh, we're not allowing them to combine for the purpose of pursuing their rights in the workplace. Um, and I think it's interesting that, you know, you see a lot of the, the popularized cases today involving arbitration, such as at Fox News, where the, um, the, the victims who um, have eventually came forward, they have a great deal of wherewithal to pursue their legal claims. Uh, whereas most people do not, mm -hmm. uh, and the benefits that they might get uh, could far outweigh the costs that they might incur in going through any arbitration process, particularly if they uh, felt it necessary to retain their own counsel. Uh, so it's, it's really a lopsided thing. It's not like negotiating a labor arbitration agreement between a union and a management and a contract. It's as he said, you know, you're given a piece of paper, uh, you have to check the box or you're not going to get the job. And, you know, these are also used commonly in all kinds of consumer contracts that, you know, people probably are not aware of at all when they sign these agreements and the fine print that they've subjected their claims to mandatory arbitration. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. Uh, my guests are Sam Bagenstas. He's a professor of law and constitutional law and civil liberties, uh, teaches employment law at the University of Michigan. Also with us is Merrick Masters. He's a director of labor at Wayne State University, where he is a professor of business and an adjunct professor of political science. We're talking about yesterday's ruling by the Supreme Court that limits the instances in which employees may be able to sue their employers. Uh, I, I want to talk quickly about the role that Congress has played on this issue historically, uh, but also this, this uh, I guess, hope that some people have out there that Congress might step in here uh, and maybe clarify in a way that that uh, is less uh, less harmful to to employees. Uh, uh, Sam, I'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, you know, so this this decision by the Supreme Court yesterday was interpreting a law of the Federal Arbitration Act that Congress passed in the 1920s. Right. Um, and you know, when Congress passed that law, it actually worked pretty hard to exempt the employees, the workers who, who it had the ability to regulate under the law of the time. Um, but the Supreme Court in 2001 said that only applies to a certain set of employees. And, and for most workers, Federal Arbitration Act applies. This is all statutory interpretation, which means Congress could change the law. Congress could adopt a law tomorrow mm -hmm. that said, there's no arbitration in these cases. Um, Congress could adopt a law tomorrow that said, if there's arbitration, you can't require people to give up their rights to a class action. The question is whether Congress will do that. And I think, you know, the Me Too movement 
will help with that, um, will will help move that along. I think, you know, the the fact that you have arbitrations in the individual arbitration context are often private, so you end up with a lot of secrets, uh, you know, secret decisions, uh, secret law. That rubs a lot of people the wrong way, particularly in the context of kind of serial violators of the law. That may help, but, you know, I mean, I'm certainly not an expert in politics in Washington, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen right now with the Congress we have. With this Congress, right. Um, Go ahead, Mayor. But I would would add to that, um, although it's not likely that it's going to happen in this Congress, there is nonetheless um, some bipartisanship and support for um, mitigating the impact of... um, these mandatory arbitration provisions under the 1925 Act, and that I think it's likely that if the Democrats take control of the House and Senate, that you could see a pretty strong push um, in the next Congress to do something about this, uh, particularly with it being on the forefront, um, with the Supreme Court just having made this ruling. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we had a caller who uh, we can't uh, get on the line, but he said, how can it be required that someone must go through arbitration if it's a legal issue? That's a, I think this is a kind of important clarifying uh, question. Why is it that uh, the court essentially can bar people from getting into court uh, over legal issues? Yeah, I mean, I think what the what the Supreme Court has said is this is just enforcing a contract. Mm-hmm. This is just an agreement that the worker and the employer have made that if they have any disputes, they won't go to court. They'll go through arbitration. Um, and, you know, I, I think, as Justice Ginsburg suggested yesterday, to think about it as a contract in the sense that it's actually negotiated uh, between the parties is not really consistent with reality. Um, But, you know, we have a lot of contracts in our legal system that uh, are like that, Um, you know, and and so that's that's the way they think about it. They think about it as you've just made an agreement, you know, just like you can agree to you can make all sorts of agreements to give up legal rights that you have. Um, You can make an agreement to give up the procedural right to go to court. Um, You know, I think what people are seeing and the reason why you're starting to have a lot of people in the political system and, and in the world at large upset about this is that, you know, a lot of us at many points in our daily life are giving up rights that we didn't know we're giving up, you know, because mm-hmm. these contracts appear, you know, in something that, you know, in the fine print of something we have to sign to get on with our day or just when we click on a link or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's, that's what's leading to a lot of the controversy here. Yeah. Can I add something real quickly to that? I I think this is where the power of the employer becomes really important because it's my understanding, and I'm not an attorney, but it's my understanding that um, the court has recognized that you can still pursue your legal claims, and I know that EOC has issued uh, some sort of an opinion to a similar effect. But in practicality, you know, if you're signed an agreement and an employer comes to you and says, well, you've already signed this agreement, you have to go through this procedure, 
and that if there is a confidentiality aspect to it and there's a penalty for violating that confidentiality aspect to it, then I think, you know, the employee is going to say, well, I I really don't have a choice here. Uh, And so it isn't something where they, as um, my colleague said, where they've sat down and they thought this through and negotiated it and they're aware of what the particulars are and what the implications of it are. They're just handed boilerplate language Mm -hmm. and saying, take it or leave it. Um, and so, you know, it's, while technically that may be a contract, um, it certainly wasn't one that was mutually concurred to. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, okay. Uh, Sam Bagenstus, uh, professor of law and constitutional law and civil liberties, who teaches employment law at the University of Michigan. Thank you very much for being here on Detroit Today. Thank you. Uh, and Merrick Masters, Director of Law Labor at Wayne State University, Professor of Business and Adjunct Professor of Political Science. Thank you for being here on Detroit Well, thank today. you for having me. I appreciate it. Have a good day. You too. All right, up next, we're going to talk about border zone communities and where that means something, what that means, where it's enforced, and whether it's a proxy for overly aggressive uh, policing of immigrant communities. Also, don't forget, if you miss any of today's show, you don't have to miss out on the conversation. Just go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts, download and subscribe to Detroit Today, and you can take us with you and listen when you are ready. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.